Welcome to another episode of This Ordinary Life, a podcast about ordinary people who have extraordinary stories. My guest today is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and a member of the New York Air National Guard. She flies C-130s with a unique mission, flying to Antarctica and the Greenland Ice Sheet. Welcome, Susie Nelson. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, how are you? Great, thanks, Corey. <laughs> yeah, of course, thank you. This is kind of an impromptu yeah. uh, thing. You're in town, so we figured we'd do it. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. This is the first time I've ever been on a podcast before. So. Yeah. yeah, well, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> we'll try and make it a, a, a good experience. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so people probably don't know um, that the the 130s that you fly, so she flies C-130s, kind of a medium-sized People think they're huge, but they're sort of a medium-sized cargo plane. Definitely. Uh, and you're you uh, are like the only ones that still have skis, right? Yes. I mean, are you guys? Uh, We're the largest ski-equipped aircraft uh, in the U.S. Uh, who knows? R- Russia might have something else, but uh, <laughs> for right now, so there we have ten of these LC-130s, and they're equipped with skis that are permanently affixed to the bottom of our airplane. And we, if you look at a normal C-130, imagine the gear doors are removed and the skis are where the gear doors would be. So they do give us some extra drag. So we don't, we're not able to fly as fast as other C-130s, uh, but we do have similar range. So the flight that we take to get to Antarctica, we leave New York and it's about an eight hour flight to the West Coast, usually Travis Air Force Base. And then we go to Hawaii, another eight hour trip. And then to Pago Pago in American Samoa, and then down to Christchurch, New Zealand. And that's where our airplanes are. Uh, they go through uh, some cursory maintenance there, and we pick up our uh, passengers and whatever cargo that the National Science Foundation has for us, and we'll fly that cargo down to McMurdo, and that's another eight hour flight. And then usually we stay in McMurdo for, and we fly uh, missions to the ice cap from McMurdo Station, which is one of three permanent. U.S. research stations um, that are constantly open. So they're um, constantly manned. So that's the South Pole Station, McMurdo Station, and Palmer Station on the other coast. Uh, So (laughs) we'll go start kind of slow, I guess. Well, I'm I'm always curious. I was, so you land, they don't have to retrofit the skis on at some point. Like you can land on whatever, like, you know, solid dirt or whatever yeah. with and the so skis for on. for our airplanes you a lot of people think that you have to attach them someplace along yeah, the trip right. but um there's just a switch inside the airplane and so before we move the gear you either have skis up or skis down what a trip yeah so <laughs> exactly <laughs> and what kind of stuff are you taking so you get situated in Christchurch, right is that and that's where you guys mostly stage out of we do to some extent. This year, our, we've been staging out of there exclusively. Normally, we just have a small maintenance team and some staff personnel that stay in New Zealand. And the rest of us actually um, go to Antarctica and we stay in dorms. And we have the same building every year and almost the same room. And you have a, a trunk of stuff. And so you, then you operate for your entire mm, three weeks to two months, depending on your crew position and depending on um, the length of your deployment, we, we do have some say in how, how long our deployments are. Most of our full-timers do two months and part-timers do three weeks. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then that's three weeks actually in, in New Zealand or in McMurdo. Okay. 
what kind of stuff are you transporting over there? Oh, yeah, Mostly people? That. Yeah, I'm yeah. just curious. So we do, is it like, yeah, we do uh, yeah. carry a lot of people, but um, once we're... So the C-17 does come down in the beginning of the season and at the end of the season, so they'll bring down some of the larger cargo, but we'll bring down things like helium tanks. We've uh, carried helium tanks, and the helium tanks are used to... Um, there's the LDB, Long Duration Balloon, I think it stands for. And that balloon is a project that has been going on for many years. And they fill up this giant balloon, and it's one of those uh, giant silver balloons, probably a couple hundred feet tall once it's inflated. And that balloon is used um, for meteorological studies. And they also use that helium for other types of smaller balloons they use for um, day-to-day weather reporting and that kind of thing. So sometimes we'll carry helium tanks, or sometimes you'll carry um, giant spools of of wire or something. <laughs> or sometimes you'll carry vehicles, like um, some of the vehicles that are parts for vehicles. Sometimes we'll carry those. Usually we just carry those from uh, the bigger equipment comes on cargo ship. So they have one cargo ship and one fuel tanker usually every year. This like a, like a, bo- a ship. A ship, a boat. Yeah, yeah, boat. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and those, so then the icebreaker, the Coast Guard icebreaker, breaks up the channel and at the end of the season because we are only there in Antarctica's summer. So... Yeah, I mean, do you do you have uh, do you bring special things for like? Are there people who are there like who you don't have contact with the outside world kind of thing? Like, do people request special things? Like the people who are actually stationed there, the scientists and the workers and stuff, do they ever be like, you know, um, bring us like a copy of this or um, maybe swap out a DVD or something like that? Or do they have internet down there? That yeah, they have. They do have internet and they do have satellite internet even at the South Pole. So. And you'd be surprised. There's so much stuff that gets left there from year to year. So there's a library. There's um, there's a music room. You know, there's musical instruments. There's ping pong tables. There's anything you can think of. They have there's a workout room and yoga equipment. And you know, it, there's there's all kinds of stuff that's down there. So usually, and that's McMurdo. And this is at McMurdo. Yeah, but then okay. also at the South Pole. The South Pole is its tiny little community where they have same kind of thing. They have a gym. They have a they have a library, they have a music room, they have a greenhouse that I was telling Stacey about yesterday. Um, they they have everything they could possibly need to survive. And they, once our airplanes leave in February, so right about now, uh, this is a weird year, but right about now those people um, would uh, be, they're probably being swapped out right now by the Twin Otter since our airplanes aren't really doing any on-continent emissions this particular year because of COVID. But they once our airplanes leave in February, those people don't, anybody else other than the people that are at the station and usually it's about tw- maybe 40 people i think that stay for the winter wow a very long winter until we go back in in the end of november or beginning of december that's crazy yeah isn't that crazy yeah. to not see another soul other than these <laughs> some people go crazy yeah i could yeah. totally see that because there's no way to get i mean do they do rest i mean say there's a medical emergency or something can they fly something in or is it like you really are so they we've airdropped in the past there has there was a doctor there the station doctor who was actually diagnosed uh, she diagnosed herself with cancer Oof. and um i think she maybe performed surgery on herself and and had chemo drugs flown in this was a long time ago before i was ever in this unit i think it was in the uh, mid 90s and she they actually airdropped her um 
supplies and then flew all the way back and it was a pretty harrowing mission i heard but um, but yeah th- so the people that go down there are extensively screened for medical issues and for psychology um, psychological issues and that kind of thing too so um definitely a special and usually those people have had to have spent a winter in either mcmurdo station or palmer station or have had some other type of um, deployment type of situation where they've been in isolated ice cap, uh, either in Greenland or, or down in McMurdo before they're allowed to spend that much time at the South pole. Oh man. Yeah. They have to do like a summer at least or something like that. That's crazy. But there's definitely people that go every single year. We always see the same faces and we go every year, but we only go for the summer season. Yeah. We don't have anybody that stays for the winter. Yeah. I know. So I had wanted to do that Mm -hmm. for a while. And uh, I do remember reading that kind of once there's like regulars who, if they sign back on are like guaranteed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like a good chunk of the people that are there are like recurrent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense because yeah, who knows what, I mean, you don't know what it's going to be like until obviously it's a hard place to describe too, because (laughs) you know, it's so remote and there's a lot of pictures on online about it, but to actually live there and to not see anything green. And uh, the other weird thing too, is that it's all adults. So normally, even if you travel around the world, you see children and you see animals and you see, but you go there and you might see a penguin or a seal, but everybody else is an adult. And so it's really weird when you come back to New Zealand, especially if you've done an entire chunk and you haven't done any, we call them north-south rotators, where you go up to New Zealand, pick up cargo and fly back. It just depends on the year and what they need. Sometimes some of our missions, um, they just need more cargo that wasn't able to be brought in by cargo ship or by C-17. So sometimes we will do those trips or sometimes we'll move people if the if the weather's poor and the C-17 can't come in. Um, they do have higher, um, more, more strict weather requirements than we do just because we have more options to land because of the skis. We can kind of land anywhere to yeah. some extent. So um, we have more options. So, um, But sometimes you won't do any of those north-south, so you, you don't end up in New Zealand, and you get back and you're like, oh, there's children and <laughs> cats. And, you know, it seems kind of weird that... It's things like that that you miss. So I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. You're not, I mean, it, yeah. Air, all aspects of it are a little bit alien, mm-hmm. it seems like. It definitely yeah. kind of feels like you're, you could be on Mars type of thing. Yeah. You know, and they actually, the, one of some of the cooler studies they're doing right now is they're testing equipment that they're either going to use for drilling in space or um, type of vehicles to use on Mars, on the surface of Mars. And um, there's lots of other type of NASA-type projects that are being done. So it's not all specifically science with penguins and global warming like some people think. Um, And the ice cap shipped and stuff like that and, and drilling um, like ice core sample. Ice core sample. Like yeah. 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 So there, uh, obviously that stuff happens, but then there's a lot of stuff that's, um, there's a cool project and I don't know enough about it to talk about it, but there's a cool project called the ice cube project. And they were working, looking for, I think it was antimatter, um, Whoa. or nanoparticles or something crazy like that. So, um, probably not going to sound very smart on here <laughs> because I really don't understand how it works, but interesting projects that are kind of outside the realm of what you would assume people are studying down there. Yeah, that's pretty cool mm-hmm. because I do just assume that it's like the climatologists and mm-hmm. biologists and stuff like that that are down there. But I know it's huge. I mean, McMur- McMur- <laughs> McMurdo Station is fairly 
substantial, right? It's like mm-hmm. a little city. Yeah, and in the summer, in the height of the summer, there's probably about 800 people there, sometimes even more. When the ship is being offloaded, they bring in, uh, I'd say, at least 100 or 200 people extra to help unload that cargo ship. So usually the military is the the Navy, Coast Guard, Army um, help with that unloading. So um, they just have a lot of, especially the Navy and the Coast Guard, have a lot of experience with building the ice pier, that they use to actually affix the ship to the, to, to the edge, you know? What? Yeah, so they so build this So it's not a pier. structure. It's, it's, not, it's an like ice It's not pier. a physical structure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a, a permanent structure. Yeah, they basically create it almost every year. What yeah. the hell? Yeah, and it, there's um, a system of floating docks that they've used in the past, too, um, when the ice pier has failed. And so it, that in and of itself is a really interesting feat. So you'd think of it being more scientific related, but there's actually a lot of engineers that are down there or connected with that, with the just the logistics of moving things there, um, combination of ship and aircraft and the dimensions of these items. Because you, if you want it to get to the South Pole and it's a large item, it can only get there on one of our airplanes. Um, they are doing some traverses now where they're taking, but that's mostly for fuel. So they have these giant fuel bladders that are on almost like a plastic sheet, like a plastic sled type of thing. And they drag those with these giant tractors and use GPS um, GPS coordinates to uh, drive the stuff. And it's over 700 miles from McMurdo Station to the South Pole. And they'll drive these giant tractors and it's this convoy of tractors wow. of, fuel, of fuel bladders. And That to, seems crazy, mm, too. Yeah. I mean, because the, uh, that kind of terrain is always shifting, right? I mean, I guess maybe it's more permanent up there, but there's definitely always that risk of the crevasses where yeah, yeah. and and I know that the places that we go to, um, they're they're studied extensively before we go. Um, and every year we look at the imagery again just to make sure that nothing has happened. Um, and and usually the places that we fly to our established camps, but when we do go to a new camp or for example the traverse um, they look at all the satellite imagery and just, you know, do it. And sometimes we do an overfly of that area before we even land as well, just to check out the, the, the terrain. So yeah, the flying there has got to be unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Just kind of wacky, right? I mean, scary. <laughs> I feel like it would be kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that the part about it is just the weather changes yeah. and because of its location, there aren't a lot of satellites there so it's hard for the meteorologist to really get a good weather forecast and to to run their models because there's actually about an eight hour time frame of of satellite blackout and so they don't even have imagery to be able to see ahead so they run their model but you don't always see the storms as they're coming in so the weather can change in an instant and so we've had times where um, I've been at the South Pole and we've departed the South Pole to go back to McMurdo and it's only about a three-hour flight and we've gotten part of the way back to McMurdo and they say the weather is too poor turn around and go to the South Pole so we went back to the South Pole and spent uh, a couple nights there I've done that twice uh, just because the weather changed so fast and the weather at the South Pole was better than the weather at McMurdo that's crazy. Yeah, and it just changed in an instant. And then sometimes you don't get that lucky, and the weather changes once you're past the point where you could turn around and you just don't have enough fuel. And so the only other option is we don't really have – we have two airfields. There's one that's a ski 
we call it a skiway, and it's basically a groomed, uh, it's 12,000 feet long, and it's flagged on either side by these bamboo poles with cloth that has um, uh, metal flex in it that will actually reflect off of the radar. So our navs can back up. We do have instrument approaches like a normal airport would have, and they do have some lighting. Um, however, there's no lighting on the edge of the skiway. And so all you have are these flags. And so the flags are black and some are in the midfield and the approach and the departure end are red as well. And so you, so the red ones do tend to stand out, but all you have is these black flags. And sometimes when the visibility is really poor, it just looks like the flags are floating and you don't really have much of a horizon. And uh, we do, if you do end up going and, and basically not having any visibility on the runway, on the skiway, um, and after a couple attempts, if there's no luck and you're at Minfuel, the only other option is to land in this area we call the whiteout area. And it's a, a, a four-mile by 12-mile triangular spot that is um, completely clear of anything on the ground. And so we know we put the airplane down on the snow and you just land it into the wind at, um, that we use like certain air speeds and, um, and you just, uh, settle it down between like a hundred, uh, feet per minute. And you just try to settle it down on the snow into the wind. And then you have to taxi all, all the way back, you know, 12 <laughs> miles back to the base. So that doesn't happen very often. We've only had a couple crews since I've been at the unit that actually had to do that. But there's definitely some days where the weather turns on you in an instant and you just don't have any options. But the good thing about having the skis is that you can kind of land anywhere as long as you know it's surveyed and safe. So that's where, yeah, that's that how the surveying <laughs> comes in handy. Of course. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, any time... Um, I would land, I think my balls would be in my mouth a little <laughs> bit because you never know if you're like, I mean, cause it doesn't take a lot of, of deviation from flat mm -hmm. to cause a real problem. Yeah. Definitely. Maybe with the skis, it's a little bit better, but probably not. Um, yeah. And, and we, those approaches, we actually fly a lot more stable and the, um, instead of coming in, like normally you come in to land, at a higher angle of attack as you as you're coming in, um, but but we're at a lower glide slope, and so the the glide slope is is just kind of flatter, and so you're basically just slowly descending, and so everything's a lot more slow and controlled. And we actually put our our gear and skis and flaps down a lot earlier than we do in a normal approach, just to have the most stable platform so you're on the same airspeed and you're just creeping your altitude down and looking for those flags and listening to your navigator and looking at whatever instruments you have for the runway that's in use but um there's a predominant runway skiway actually um that that for the dominant winds but when we have storms that come in then the storm is always comes from the other direction and that's when things get crazy because those we don't have good approaches uh, because of the terrain. Because I don't know if you know this, but there's a, a volcano, Mount Erebus, and it's one of two uh, current, um, what do you call it, like um, current active volcanoes. Yeah. Um, and they spit out these little air, these little crystals, and they call them Erebus crystals. And it they look like black uh, quartz crystals. Whoa. They're pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So, um so there's a lot of volcanic, um, volcanic activity, but then also it, there's this like 12,000 foot volcano that's pretty close to where 
the skiway is. And so that limits the the way that they can actually build instrument approaches. So unfortunately, if the winds are bad, you just don't really have as many options with uh, for the uh, precision approaches that you would use in the States or any other normal airport on wheels. Yeah. Yeah, so. That's scary. Yeah, that's kind of crazy, yeah. Now, once you get there, I mean, is do you guys still use, you were using JATO. Yeah. Still, you are you like the only people that still use so, so jet, jet assisted takeoff yeah. is JATO for people. Yeah, who don't jet, know what jet that assisted is. takeoff, and it's uh, solid rocket fuel. <laughs> There's um, four, yeah, eight bottles total, four on each side, and they weigh the bottles weigh approximately 150 pounds each. And the bummer part about it is usually you. We don't normally because they do add some drag, so you, you don't fly with them all the time. You'd only fly, you would only attach them to the airplane if it was something if you were landing in a place where um, it was a camp that didn't have an established skiway where we hadn't been landing there many times and it wasn't nicely packed down and it wasn't an established camp. So we haven't been to very many new camps recently, and when we switch over to the eight bladed prop. The eight-bladed prop actually gives us a lot more power um, at those slower airspeeds. And so it almost acts like this another engine, just like the Jado would act like another yeah, engine. Okay. And so, and part of the reason why we switched to the eight-bladed prop and that was a big push was because they were running out of those Jado bottles and they didn't make they haven't made them since <laughs> Probably the 60s, yeah, I exactly. mean, a long yeah, time. Vietnam yeah. era. So, yeah. so we were running out of the bottles, and we were one, only the, one of the only few units that still used it. Yeah. And so so that was one of the big pushes to, to actually get the A-bladed prop. That makes sense. Because mm. that, I mean, so for people who don't know, a C-130 has four props normally. <laughs> like yes. a standard issue, C-130 yeah. has four yeah. props. Four props, and, <laughs> and each prop has four blades. With the And then the new C-130J model, though, uh, same thing, four props four engines and those blade there's eight blades per prop yes or sorry six blades per prop for the j model so for the lc-130 um this is a a newer style of blade and they have um it's eight blades per prop and we've had pretty good uh luck and success with them yeah um Definitely a long time coming. It was about 10 years of a process of switching over to those. Um, Which sounds better because that Jado is not good for anybody, right? I mean, did you ever have to use it? Like, were you yes, on a flight I with it? Yeah, I did have to <laughs> use it. And the, I, the only place I had to use it was, um, actually, I think we used it twice. I used it at a camp that was a high-altitude camp called Agap South where it was 13,000 feet. And uh, we hadn't been landing out there very often, and so we needed it to get off the snow. And really... And um, you've probably seen it, videos of it in an air show. Maybe you saw Fat Albert do it. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems a lot more impressive because they use it and it just basically the airplane just takes off. Yeah, it's like a fighter jet yeah. or something. Yes, it looks like it's in full afterburner, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, with all yeah. the, the flames coming out of the side. Um, for us, unfortunately, it doesn't really act. It doesn't really give us as much as you think it would. It basically is like it gives you about six to eight knots of airspeed oh that's not, so it's yeah. not that much and so basically um in order we need uh about 60 knots of airspeed to break the friction of the snow to oh, basically get yeah. the nose off of the to basically like just bring that nose up off the snow if you can get the nose off the snow at 60 knots you're gonna go fly 
So usually the only time you would actually even use that 8 is just to be able to bump up your airspeed to get that 60 knots to break that friction of the nose ski. Because once you get that nose ski off, then it, it allows the airplane to start to um, to kind of float up and, and take the weight off of the back skis and you'll get enough lift to go fly. Man, what but a that's kind of, yeah. So basically it doesn't really, it's, it, you can hear it, um, but it's not as, it's not as impressive. Okay. I mean, it burns for about 15 seconds or so. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it might like push you back into the seat. No, no, no. It's <laughs> like, not, I, that would be really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Did you, uh, have you had any harrowing, uh, approaches or takeoffs at any, uh, station? Um, I have in actually in Greenland. So in our summer in the Northern hemisphere summer, we go to Greenland and we use Greenland as the Greenland ice cap is a pretty great place for training because they don't have a lot of crevassing and they don't really have a lot of hazards up there. And so there's two stations that um we that they're doing science at summit station and east grip and then east grip they're doing drilling summit station they're doing um uh, more climate studies and that kind of thing um and then the and summit station is open year-round as well so that's a permanent station. East Grip, they shut it down at the end of every summer season. But Summit Station is continuously operating like the South Pole. So there's always people there. So it's a U.S. station in Greenland. So kind of interesting, the different agreements and stuff like that. So Yeah, um, well, because Antarctica doesn't belong to anybody. Right? No. That's the whole idea there is it's supposed Correct. to be free and open. And, and there's a um, the Antarctic Treaty that is signed by all the nations and basically they everybody agrees that they're that it's only going to be used for exploration and for science and nobody can claim it so all militarize it yeah or militarize (laughs) it so yeah um but not everybody but not everybody that's there has signed the treaty so there are nations that because it is open and there there's no there's no govern there there's nobody Nobody's allowed to live there per se. Yeah. So according to the Antarctic Treaty, people have to leave after a certain amount of time and that kind of thing. Um, so. But if I could get there, I'm welcome. Um, <laughs> like if I had my own boat or my own plane. Yeah, but or there's no, but there there's no hotels. <laughs> of course, no, yeah. yeah. Where so, am I going to stay? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, in theory, you could pitch a tent and just. Yeah, like, oh God. Yeah. Build your own little like wooden structure. Yeah. Yeah. Like Scott did. Make it camp court. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could do it. Nobody's saying you can't. Um, yeah, Sorry. so in the summer, so we go, um, so we also have our own little base that we call Raven, and that's um, pretty close to Sonderstrom uh, Air Base in Greenland. Um, Kangaroosawag is the other name of it uh, in Greenlandic, and that was actually an old Air Force base. Um, closed down... Um, it was Cold War era. So when, oh. so there were some radar sites that the, our unit used to help bring cargo to these different radar sites during the Cold War. But once those sites were shut down, the base really wasn't necessary anymore and they didn't really need it for strategic use. And so they shut it down. But um, we still needed the science, uh, the, kind of the science picked up at the same time. So the summit station and East grip and some of these other places that we, there was a neem camp and um, we've had other camps up there where they've done different projects, depending on uh, what national science foundation grants and, um, and, and they, we also fly 
um, the Danish up there as well. So there are some uh, uh, European universities that actually uh, coordinate with the National Science Foundation. So um, a lot of collaborative type of work. So it's not always U.S. projects. Sometimes it's it's foreign projects as well. Um, just in the name of science, they work together to, to do different projects and um, bring in money from um, other organizations, which is kind of interesting. So when we go up uh, in the summer, we only go for a smaller amount of time. So we go for oh, probably like two weeks at a time, give or take, and we do a combination of science and a combination of training. So since it's only a six-hour flight from New York, it's a lot easier to get people back and forth. And so we can go for a shorter amount of time, um, and we use that time to train our new people on all of our ski landings, um, airborne radar approaches that the NAVs use to go into a place like I was talking about with the flags on the side yeah, of the Yeah, because that's not normal. For no. people who don't don't know anything about flying, that's like... 100% not a normal situation you're going to get into. Yeah. Another thing, too, is that um, we use grid navigation because, you know, near the poles, the magnetic poles, um, magnetic navigation, as you know it, in other parts of the world don't work. So um, our navigators use um, uh, they, they use uh, grid navigation, and then also um, they back it up with cell, with cell shots, um, with the sextant port that no. Um, yeah. So we we're one of the you only. Still have we still have Yeah. That's great. Um, so it is kind of a little bit of a dying art form. They don't teach that anymore in nav school. Yeah. Um, so our our instructors that are experienced, they just pass on that skill. So they do a lot of practice of those type of old school navigation techniques up there. What a trip. Yeah, and then we we obviously back it all up with GPS. Um, like you normally would uh, in any other part of the world. But yeah. um, as a backup, just in case you ever lost all that, um, which we did have an issue where we did lose our um, our inertial navigation. And so we ended up having to use um, some uh, some shots off the sun, basically, and like use that positioning to figure out where we were. And, and then luckily the weather was beautiful and we were able to just fly, um, just note where the train was and use charts and stuff. But that doesn't happen that often. Um, it was only one time in my career, my very first year up in, in uh, coming back from the South Pole. So, but uh, a couple of years ago, I was up at summit camp and the weather was really poor and we had to do multiple approaches to um, pick up our own people that were stuck there and were stranded and the sun was setting and it was starting to get dark and we because you need those visual cues of landing on that skiway with those flags, there's no lights. Um, we don't do any ski operations at night. Um, so that's kind of an interesting uh, limitation because most of the places we go to, it's 24 hours of daylight. Um, however, in Greenland, towards the beginning of the season or the end of the season, the sun is starting to set. And so at the end of the day, you, you really do your crunch on time. And so it was kind of the last, you know, uh, bingo fuel you know we're almost out of fuel it was our last opportunity to get in and uh and this the flags are coming sideways and um it was a very difficult approach for me um <laughs> after a couple approaches but um we managed to get in and um and take off right as the sun was starting to set and the cool thing was as we're flying back to Sandstrom to Kangalusawag uh, we were able to see the northern lights in the distance yeah, and that was cool. that was amazing it was very uh, rewarding after a very long harrowing day <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah because I mean when you're so you're when you say coming in looking at this flag sideways you're talking about looking out your so side mirror it's not like which is um 
not uncommon flying here in the United States, but I can't imagine if you're trying to get a really stable approach mm-hmm. coming in, like crabbing your way in is probably because, not, yeah, not ideal. Yeah. So when the winds are, 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 uh, when you have crosswinds and we don't have a crosswind runway at summer camp, um, it's just one ski way and you can land going either direction, but there's nothing that goes perpendicular. So if the, uh, so we do have limitations on the skis. So basically, um, 15 knots, um, of, of drift, of, uh, like a crosswind. A crosswind. It, yeah. And, um, yeah, 15 knots of crosswind, I should say. Um, drift, um, because when you come in, you don't want any kind of side loading on the skis and you end up in such a crab that you're not stable. And, and like I said before, you really want a very stable platform. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little mm-hmm. bit sketchy. Yeah. And then, and then depending on sometimes, the when the navigator is doing their approach and they're actually telling you they're actually giving you turns they're saying okay come right okay come left okay stop turn and so and then eventually the co-pilot will take over that approach um and usually the nav is giving you headings and then the co-pilot will talk you down on that approach and and then once they see the skiway they say okay pilot look outside and then the flags and sometimes just the way that the winds are coming in if the you're you're crabbed into the wind obviously we have those limitations we don't want to be too far crabbed into the wind but you might have a little bit of crab and so you're on instruments inside and then you go up and you look outside and you're trying to figure out where the flags are and, and which way and, is up yeah, probably and, and, even. yeah <laughs> and you're still going you know we're still at um about let me see like 107 knots give or take when you're flying in on that that approach right closer to the ground so i mean you're not going super fast but at the same time it's fast enough that the flags are going by and you're trying to get okay where is the end of the skiway where's the beginning which which flags are these the flags that are the lead-in flags that bring you up to the skiway or are these the flags that are actually on the skiway you know and like are do where do i see the red ones the termination bar you know so it's trying you it's your your brain sometimes it takes a little bit to catch up and so sometimes we do the approach where where the pilot the left seat pilot is the one who is is looking outside and so the right seat pilot the co-pilot is um, listening to the navigator and making the small turns and the small corrections as they're as they're flying in on final, and then as soon as the left seat pilot starts to see the flags, and then they t- they're talking to the co-pilot. Okay, c- yeah, continue your descent. Okay, I have the flags in sight. I'm just waiting to get the skiway in sight. Uh, yeah, continue this or turn right, slight uh, stop stop turn, uh, turn left, stop turn. Okay, stay right there. Okay, continue descent. Okay, now I got it. And then you'll take over. So the whole time. You're looking outside, and then you take controls, and then, um, and you know that your co-pilot kept you. You're right there on airspeed and altitude, and the airplane's trimmed up and stuff. Man. So that's what we did on on that approach. So um, talk about crew time, management. Yeah, so it's holy a, hell. It is very important to have a very good crew dynamic, and the whole time the flight engineer who sits between the two pilots. Um, the flight engineer is um, helping back, backing you up on, and sometimes you even have a load master in the windows. Like everybody's up front looking for flags, trying to figure out what's going on as soon as you break out. Because if you, no kidding, are at your minimum fuel, you don't have any options. And you really don't want to have to go and land in the middle of nowhere um, in that whiteout area. And, no. um, and we don't really have that option as much up in Greenland. That's more of an Antarctic thing because our bingo fuel, we always leave enough fuel to get back to Sonnestrom to be able to land on wheels on the pavement. So it's, we do have a little bit more options up in Summit, and we always had that option um, that day. 
So yeah. we, we always could have just knocked it off and gone back. But we had those guys on the ground that we really wanted to pick up. So it was important to complete the mission to pick up our people. Yeah. What a trip. Yeah, crazy. That's a lot of communication going on in a pretty stressful situation. Mm -hmm. Just it seems like every landing is kind of a bit like Ooh. And and every landing is is similar to that. And yeah. you know, sometimes the weather's beautiful and you're just like, Okay, let's go look for penguins, you know? <laughs> but usually it's more like that. And yeah. um and 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 sometimes it might be a place that you haven't been before. And so you just do those procedures because it's hard. It's imagine looking out and everything being completely white and there's no trees, there's no mountains, there's no, there's nothing. It's just, and just, and you'll just see this little camp and, you know, a couple tractors and maybe a building or two and a tent and a fuel bladder and that's it for hundreds of miles. Yeah. And, and so it's hard. And if the, if the horizon is obscured, sometimes when you get, a, a, normally as a pilot, you get that ground rush and you kind of start to see the ground coming towards you. But when everything's white, you don't really get that. It's like everyone describes it as um, being inside a golf ball. Everything <laughs> yeah, just kind of looks white, you know. Yeah. And, um, and so you really do have to rely on your instruments and the backup of all of your crew members. Yeah. Yeah, because you get, uh, is it spatial, de what do they call yeah, that yeah, when you yeah, get, spatial, yeah, 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 yeah spatial. spatial disorientation, is mm -hmm, that what it is? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When and you're so like, uh, mm -hmm, don't know what's up or yeah. down or left or right. Or yeah. And so we, like, even when we, um, you know, sometimes you just, you just end up going misapproach and you say, you know what, we're just going to try this again, yeah. you know, and sometimes it's not necessarily the weather that's poor. Maybe you have a new navigator and they just kind of mess up their headings or sometimes like the way that the radar is set up, they give you the opposite. They say, <laughs> turn right instead of turn, you know, and, and some of that's practice. And yeah. that's why we go up to Greenland and we practice these approaches. The weather will be beautiful, clear in a million. You can see forever, but we'll still go over those procedures over and over again so that when you do have to do them, no kidding in the weather, you've done them so many times and maybe with those same crew members, you know, and you might be deployed together with those same exact people, but we all use the same techniques, the same checklist, um, everything. And the cool thing is the Navy actually had this mission, um, a long time ago, like in the eighties and early nineties. And that's when the New York Air National Guard took it over from them in the late nineties. And the Navy, because they were active duty, they swapped their people out every three years. And so there had a lot more turnover. And so when we, when the New York Air National Guard took it over, they really tried hard to come up with a more uh, specific training methodology and terminology and lots of checklists and to make it a lot safer um, and certain weather requirements to go into some of these places and, and, um, and just extra check. And like, we just don't do some of the crazier things that they used to do just because we do have to be a lot more conservative because um, you have a large airplane and we take off on the snow at 155,000 pounds, just like you would on pavement. So we take off at max gross weight and it's a lot of airplane. And sometimes if you don't get that airspeed, you're like, okay, we got a taxi back. Sometimes you have to download cargo. Sometimes you have to wait until the winds die down. Um, it's a big deal. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And you just yeah. don't really have a lot of options for alternates either. No. So, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just can't get over the, the crevasse thing. I, mm. it, it makes me, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uncomfortable just yeah. thinking about it. And we did have an airplane that landed in the middle of nowhere and it was a new camp. And um, some of the techniques that they use, they used to, um, they called ski dragging. And they, I've never done it. They, we don't do it anymore. But basically, you almost, it's like you barely touch down and you just see if, because sometimes the way that the crevasses 
uh, you don't see them right yeah, away. Yeah, they'll be covered yeah, so, with a thin sheet yeah. or something. Sometimes yeah. with uh, satellite imagery, you can actually see the different... Um, like densities the or densi- whatever. Yeah. yeah, so sometimes they can actually see all that stuff. But, um, but without that satellite imagery and without seeing the crevasses if you if you lightly touch the the skis without actually touching down but so they did this ski drag thing and they did one on the right side one on the left side and and then in theory if you land in the middle it should be good well something happened in that process I don't I've heard the story a couple times but it's been a couple years and they ended up landing in a place where there was a giant crevasse and yeah and it um it the whole airplane settled and they opened up the crew engine's door and they were looking all the way down into a crevasse and so they had to bring in a maintenance team and they actually inflated these bladders these air bladders to lift the airplane out of the crevasse and then they replaced the engines and props and everything that they messed up when they when they basically bent the airplane and they flew it out of there. Isn't that crazy? Holy key. Mm. Yeah, so that was that was in the mid to late nineties. And we still fly that airplane today. Imagine that poor loadmaster stepping out that <laughs> no kidding. into yeah. the void. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty lucky that day that they didn't they didn't get lose. sucked in. Yeah. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and I don't think anybody got hurt. Um, nobody got hurt, but the, the airplane was broken pretty bad, but yeah, yeah it sounds it like it just sloughed, but it could have mm-hmm. gone horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And I guess if, um, when they looked later, when the rescue airplane came in, they saw an even larger crevasse that would have swallowed the whole airplane. Oh, see, that's, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's like the great unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Ew. It was gone. Yep. You ever see any kind of weird animals? You get like polar bear situation going on up there. Um, actually, they did. Um, uh, they did have a polar bear at one of the camps. It was at East Grip a couple years ago, and uh, it was wandering—not rabid, but sickly polar bear—that was wandered into their camp, and so they all were taking shelter. And um, I think they ended up either tranquilizing it or something, and relocating it someplace else, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dragging it out into the ice cap. And then uh, the cool thing—they're actually doing in—they're doing some studies down in McMurdo where they are trying to figure out if they can take these different fish and um, and increase how they do by increasing the water temperature by a degree or wow. by two degrees. And they just see, like, how c- can they reproduce? And so they have a lot of tanks that they pull these fish out of the Mc- uh, McMurdo Sound in the Ross Sea, and they pull these different aquatic animals out. And then they do these different tests, and a lot of them are on global warming. And the crazy thing is the there's these um, uh, Antarctic cod, and they live to be 90 years old. And so they're worried that they don't have enough ability to change because things that um, have a shorter lifespan, they can change and reproduce a lot faster. But these cod don't reproduce and and live too long that they kind of might just die off before their offspring can have, a, have enough evolutionary change in order to um, continue the species. So it's kind of interesting. So some of the animals are doing fairly well as it as um, it comes to global warming, but the animals that live longer, so the, and it's crazy, it was just like giant fish that look like they're kind of prehistoric and stuff <laughs> like that. So they, they do have those, and there's a, a lab, uh, the Crary Lab that's there, and you can go in and they have a touch tank and you can look at all these different things and talk <sighs> to the scientists. And they do that open house, usually once every Sunday. Uh, Sunday morning, yeah, and they and you can go in and just ask them questions, and they have all the the people that are studying the volcano, and so they'll be yeah. there and talking about the volcano and all the studies they're doing. And the cool thing about the volcano is that some of the 
um, because it's constantly erupting um, to some extent and it's so active that they're actually able to test all these um, early warning type of programs that they're using in other volcanoes that aren't are more dormant but are they're worried that they're going to uh, eventually erupt and so it's kind of cool that they're, they're like building models yeah exactly Whoa. Mm-hmm. so and then they um, there's a lot of telescopes as well oh, um, so, cool. so at the South Pole there's a telescope because the air and you know the the hole in the ozone layer basically is over the poles to the most and mostly over the South Pole and so so there's less ozone and it's so dry Antarctica is one of the driest places on earth very cold but also very dry and so there's no uh, water particles in the air that can in clouds that would cloud up the the imagery and so they're able to take very very clear pictures of the stars with these giant telescopes and so there's a lot of um, physicists that are down there doing stuff like that so what a trip Mm -hmm. yeah that would be a, a great place for it yeah yeah, I used to volunteer at Kitt Peak, which is in Arizona. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah, and they, they, they've got a pretty good viewing angle, something to do with, like, the actual angle of the mountain and okay. stuff like that. Uh, but I remember them having to cool everything down. They use mm. like, liquid nitrogen to cool all the optics and stuff down so that they could get a better image. Oh, yeah, so they wouldn't have tr- to do that at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's cool. That you, yeah. that I didn't even know they had uh, an observatory down mm-hmm. down there. Yeah, and the other interesting thing about the South Pole is that the new South Pole station that was finished, mm, basically probably around, I think it was, the dedication was in the uh, late, two th- or like 2009-ish, maybe 2010. Everything that they used to build the South Pole station um, came in on one of our airplanes. Wow. So every cool. single, when they were designing it, everything had to fit within the back of a LC-130. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. So, yeah. you know, our unit was contributed 100% to that station and, and building that station. That's got to be cool mm-hmm. to have a purposeful mission, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, it and it's like a different, it is, but. it's a different military mission too. Yeah. You know, it's more on the humanitarian science side, which is kind of a nice break from just other missions, <laughs> other you know. Deployments other deployments and stuff deployments. you have to yeah. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is awesome. I would be nerding out all the time down there. <laughs> I do sometimes. You know, sometimes yeah. we do fly with some interesting people. And then sometimes, like I said, with that one project, that Ice Cube project, they explain it to me, and I instantly am lost. And you know, and too embarrassed to be like, okay, can you go back to the beginning and yeah. tell me that all over again? Because I don't really understand. <laughs> I'm just a silly pilot. Yeah. Um. So that and um. There's a lot of studies on algae. Um. Anything you can think of. Um, and obviously penguins and that kind of thing. So every once yeah. in a while you see some really cute penguins walking through the station and they're waddling around and uh, super goofy. And that's really, really cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. You've done something that very few people get to do and, and go wander around down there mm-hmm. or even just to see it. I mean, it's not it's not like something you can just go take a tourist trip to or something. Yeah, definitely. I guess they're running cruise ships down there now a little bit. but Yeah, and I think there actually is a company that will take you – uh, they fly you in on some little teeny airplane and you actually can stay near the South Pole. But I've heard it costs uh, $100,000 or something uh, like that. Yeah, um, I know it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Very expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So I really story. appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. I like your stories. Thank you. I would like to say thank you again to Susie Nielsen for talking to me about all the incredible stuff that she's experienced down in the Arctic region and giving us a little bit of insight into what research and stuff is happening down there. It's always very fascinating to me. Uh, If you would like to learn more about what research is happening, you can go to nsf.gov. That's nsf.gov 
That's the National Science Foundation website. Uh, it's got all the current research that's happening, some upcoming projects, a bunch of educational information. It's a pretty cool little website, so check it out. And of course, if you're interested in joining the Air National Guard, you can go to goang.com and look at the available positions in your region. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can head to This Ordinary Life Podcast on Facebook and drop us a comment. We really appreciate it. And new episodes of This Ordinary Life come out the 15th of every month. And I really, really, truly appreciate everyone listening. Um, your, your feedback so far has been amazing. And I seriously, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'll try and keep uh, getting some good guests in here. So thank you and uh, farewell for now.